Welcome to the Redeemer Church Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are blessed as you join us in walking through the Word of God together. To learn more about our ministry in St. Albans, Vermont, please visit RedeemerChurchBT.com. There is a better covenant for the beginning of chapter 8 and a more excellent ministry for the last half of chapter 8. So greater, better, more excellent. All descriptors of the person and the role and the promise and the ministry of Christ. So better than what? Better than relying on, on a sinful human priest. Better than relying on the good things that we would have to do to keep up with all the bad things that we inevitably do. And under the new covenant, we have a blessed assurance, sacrifice, that doesn't need to be repeated over and over and over. And for those titles that we have given our recent sermons, you might think, well, you guys can name your sermons whatever ahead of time and then just kind of make it, make it fit that pattern. And I, and I wish I could say that we were that organized. If you know us well at all, you know that we are not. Not at all. Um, as I've uploaded the sermons online uh, the last few weeks, either Michael or myself have given them those titles. But I didn't really even catch this pattern that we had going until kind of this past week. I was looking through them. And that is just simply the pattern that the book of Hebrews has been taking for the last few chapters. But I hope that rather than seeing the last several chapters as being redundant as we continue to kind of go over this, continuously mentioning great high priest, better covenant, better sacrifice, that you're beginning to see why the author of Hebrews is being so thorough on this. It should literally mean everything to us. Because of the main point that Hebrews has been making, you don't have to live in guilt from your sin, either your past sins, your present sins, or even the sins that you inevitably will commit. You don't have to live in fear with a dark cloud over your head or without the assurance of the hope that you have in Christ Jesus. You don't even have to make a, a special trip up here to the church multiple times a week to, to cut a bull or a goat in half to make atonement for your sins. Because Christ is better. He was once for all sacrifice. A greater high priest, a better mediator on your behalf to God the Father. So let's pray, uh, and then we'll dig a little bit further into, into Hebrews uh, 9 this morning. Lord, we thank you that we can come here to your house and worship you. Lord, we thank you for reminding us in Hebrews that when we say this is your house, it is not your house in the sense uh, that the tabernacle was the place to go to, to to atone for sins and to worship, and that that most holy place was denied to all except for the great high priest once a year. Lord, we thank you that that thick veil between us and you was torn and bridged by Christ. We thank you that we can be here this morning bowing before your throne because of Christ. Lord, I pray for 
this word that we are about to go through. Lord, I pray that it is as clear uh, and edifying to us. Lord, sanctify us and make us more like you. In your name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so speaking of Hebrews, thoroughly covering this topic of Christ being better, chapters 9 and 10 of Hebrews are essentially a summing up of the last few chapters before the author then is going to be moving on in chapter 11 to the topic of faith. Now, if you were here last week or listened to the sermon online this past week, then you heard Pastor Michael teach us uh, from verses 1 through 10 of chapter 9. And these verses sort of begin that review portion of these two chapters. Essentially, last week was all about looking back at what things were like under the Old Covenant, under the law with its sacrificial offerings and washings and rituals. The whole purpose then, after all of this time in Hebrews of looking back at this, was to contrast the difference to what we now have in Christ. And as I have said in a previous sermon, it's likely not a temptation for you in 2024, in our our Western culture, to have the temptation to go back to the old covenant ways, to sacrifice animals on an altar to atone for your sins. But for the original audience, the original readers of this passage, it was a legitimate temptation. That's the system that they had been operating under for hundreds of years. But under that old covenant system, access to God, as we have said, was closed off. It was denied to all except the high priest who could only enter into that most holy place once per year. And even then, likely not with a spirit of rejoicing, but possibly with a great amount of fear that if everything was not done according to God's instruction, then he could drop dead in there due to his sinfulness entering into the presence of God's perfect and severe holiness. How much do you or I take for granted the freedom and joy and assurance of this hope and access to God that you have? Our lives should be filled with rejoicing about this freedom that we have been given. I know I, myself, can be guilty of this. But but what does that look like in our lives when we take for granted this freedom that we have. Maybe it's praying with very little reverence to God as you're nodding off to sleep at night. You know, you've already already laying on your pillow, your eyes are closed, and you remember, I haven't really spent that much time in prayer today. I better get one in real quick. Thank thank you for everything today. Forgive all my sins today. And before you even you know finish, you're you're falling falling asleep. Sure, that, that's definitely uh, taking that freedom for granted, but I think we can probably all admit that we've done that at some point. So what about taking more kind of the opposite end, the, the high church road, you might say, and thinking that prayer must always be this grand, pompous circumstance, uttered only in King James English. While it's important to have proper reverence for God, Missing the fact that we can pray at any point during our day and give thanks to Him constantly throughout our day, even for the most mundane blessings that He has given us. Or to remember that we can immediately go to Him 
and ask for forgiveness for a recent sin. Forgetting that joyous truth that we have limitless access to God can also be taking that freedom for granted. It says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 that we should rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. We have the freedom to do just that, all because of Christ, our perfect sacrifice, our great high priest and mediator of this better covenant. And not only do we have that freedom granted to us, it says it is the will of God that we come to Him in prayer constantly like this. So as I said, uh, last week was all about looking back at the old covenant with its earthly tabernacle, uh, where the bloody sacrifices were made by the high priest on behalf of the people. It also describes to us in verses 1 through 10 uh, were, the, were the different sections of the tabernacle and the four-inch thick curtain that separated the people from the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was placed. And all of these things, the tent, tabernacle, or later the more permanent temple, the priest himself, the animal sacrifices, the altar, all of these things are copies of the heavenly things, as it says in verse 23. Copies of the heavenly things. So if these are copies, then they can't be the first things. They were all a part of the first covenant, but as copies, they weren't the first or original things. It doesn't say that the heavenly things are new and improved versions of those old things. It says that these are but copies of the better heavenly things. And please don't miss the significance of this. It's kind of a lot to to catch on to. It's easy to miss. If this hasn't been clear to you before, make sure that it is now. The new covenant that we are now under in Christ is not... Plan B. It is not that the old covenant was plan A, but when it failed to permanently atone for sins, it was replaced. No. Everything in the old covenant was always meant to be a copy of the better things to come through Christ. Ephesians 1, 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Before the foundation of the world, He chose us, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. How? By blessing us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Praise God for that. The Old Covenant did its job, not to perfect us, but to serve as a copy of the better things to come, to point to Christ. Look at how our passage ended last week. And thankfully, Pastor Michael, at the end of this of his sermon, went ahead and kind of gave a little preview of what was to come in these verses today. Because verses 9 through 10 would have kind of left us on that, that cliffhanger 
And those verses say, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. These things could not perfect us. But look at the amazing way that verse 11 begins today. But when Christ appeared. Then skip down to uh, verse 12. It says, He entered once for all into the holy places. And look at the end of verse 12. Securing an eternal redemption. By what means? By His own blood. Now all this talk about blood may seem bizarre or kind of gross to you if you're new to this or really to any of us if we really get to thinking about the imagery of it. There's even an old hymn that begins with the line, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And if you think about the literal picture of that, that is admittedly a very graphic picture. But the metaphoric picture that it paints is that of the blessing of grace continuously flowing and never running out. To our Western minds, though, blood is considered a biohazard. It's, you know, you don't want someone else's blood, even an animal's blood, on you, on your things, because of our knowledge of disease. It, al- it also causes stains in clothes that's hard to get out. But also we know that blood is very important for life. As a nurse, um, I have given lots of blood transfusions to people. Uh, and I've seen just in the period of a couple of hours, patients go from being anemic, feeling very weak and exhausted, looking pale or gray, uh, and feeling unwell, to just a couple hours later after that, that uh, blood transfusion, feeling stronger, more energized, feeling much better simply because of that unit of blood. Our blood is necessary for life. When we lose enough blood, we don't feel well, and a little bit more blood, and it leads to death. God, being the creator of our bodies, knew this and told his people in Leviticus long before the scientific discoveries of the function of blood. And in Leviticus, he says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. So blood represents life. It is necessary for staying alive. And then the rest of that verse in Leviticus says, And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So if blood is life, and giving blood on the altar atoned for sin, then what is being said is that the payment or the cleansing of the impurity of sin is by death. Verse 22 of our passage today uh, says the same thing. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Or to put it another way, as Paul says in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. Because of our sinfulness, our, our souls are permanently stained. And the only way to remove that stain is through death. But we can can never fully pay that debt. Again, because of our sinfulness. 
To pay that debt on our own means eternal death and separation from God. Not just death from this life. So to have eternal life, we require a substitute. But there's, there's good news. Because the rest of that verse in Romans 6, after saying that the wages of sin is death, says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You and I owed a debt of eternal death and damnation. We needed a substitute to take our place, but not just anyone could do that. Even the high priests of the Old Covenant had to make sacrifices for their own sins. They or any other human except Jesus wouldn't be able to use their own blood or death to pay the price for others. They have their own debt to pay. Only Jesus, who had no debt of sin of his own, could be that perfect substitute. Now, you may have a lot of questions after reading through this passage about what is going on when it's talking about what Moses is doing with all the blood and after receiving the law from God. So let's reread verses 19 through 23, if you follow along with me. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled the blood both with the blood, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So there's a lot in there about sprinkling blood on, on everyone and everything. And we don't have time to get into to all of that in, in great detail. But if you'd like to look a little bit more into the narrative of, of when that was going on, you can look back at Exodus chapter 24. But essentially, everything used for the tabernacle, including the tent and all of the items used for worship and sacrifice, needed also to be cleansed with blood because they themselves were made by the hands of sinful men. And as that covenant was being inaugurated, the animal blood was sprinkled on all the people as well as a sign of its binding agreement. So what we need to take away from all of this is that yet again, these are just imperfect copies of the real and better things to come when Christ entered with a better sacrifice. And not only that, but look at verses 13 through 14 again. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the, for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So if even the blood of those animals 
animal sacrifices were good for purification, then it says, how much better is the blood of Christ? But didn't we already establish that those sacrifices cannot perfectly purify? They couldn't perfectly purify because they needed to be repeated over and over. The high priest went into the most holy place year after year, first atoning for his own sins, then for the rest of God's people. And right after coming out, preparation begins again to enter again next year. It was never the expectation that maybe this time it will cover. We're going to try it again. Maybe this time it's going to work. Then we'll be good. They always knew that the atonement would have to be repeated and repeated indefinitely. And that's what makes Christ's sacrifice infinitely better. It said it back in verse 12. He entered once for all into the holy places. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And then we see also in verse 25 that the sacrifice wasn't to offer himself repeatedly compared to the yearly sacrifice with the high priest entering the tabernacle yearly. But instead, verse 26, he has appeared once for all again at the end of the ages to put away sin. Now, I must make it clear, since Scripture itself is clear on this, it is our belief here at Redeemer that no part of our worship services, including taking communion together, should be viewed as a repeated sacrifice of Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. I say this because it, it is the viewpoint of the Catholic Church that when taking communion or the Eucharist, the bread and juice or the wine is transformed in its deepest substance while maintaining the appearance and physical makeup of the bread and wine, it is transformed in its deepest substance into the blood and body of Christ. So flowing then from that idea is that the view that, they, that taking this sacrament is essential to every Mass as a repeated sacrifice for the sin of the people. And all of this I've gotten from Catholic sources, uh, like the website Catholic Answers, which claims to be the world's largest source of uh, explanations for Catholic beliefs and practices. So I'm not making any of this up. It's not just my opinion of what I think that they believe. It, it's stated in, in, in what, what is the Catholic belief on this. So This is a dangerous error in Catholic theology. Dangerous because it is not biblical whatsoever. If this were true, first we'd have to ignore this or admit this or several other passages in Scripture, but also what then was accomplished by Jesus' death on the cross? If not a once-for-all sacrifice, as this passage clearly says, then what is it? If communion or the Eucharist is a weekly repeated sacrifice, then the only thing accomplished by Christ's death is simply making the regular sacrifices more regular. Since 
since they do it every week rather than a priest entering once per year. Plus, it would make it less messy since we're, you know, we'd be dealing with bread and wine rather than the blood of lambs, bulls, and goats. Taking, we take communion here also every week because it is important to us. We were commanded by Jesus himself to do it. And it provides us with the joyous grace of communing with Christ and with each other as a community of believers in remembering the essential gospel truth of what he did for us once for all on the cross. But it's not considered essential to our every worship service as it is to the Catholic Mass because there is no sacrifice for our sins to be made. That was already done once for all. So as a church, we for the most part hold to the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, which we have a link to on our website if you're interested in checking that out. And there are scripture references to go uh, with every statement so that it's firmly based in scripture and not just arbitrary opinion or preference. And on the topic of communion or the Lord's Supper, it says in paragraph two of that section, and we've got a slide. No, there we go. It's already up there. Um, In this ordinance, Christ is not offered up to his Father, nor any real sacrifice made at all for remission of sin of the quick or dead, but only a memorial of that one offering up of himself by himself upon the cross once for all, and a spiritual oblation of all possible praise unto God for the same, so that the popish sacrifice of the Mass, as they call it, is most abominable, injurious to Christ's own sacrifice, alone propitiation, So it is our belief here at Redeemer Church that communion is a spiritual offering of praise and remembrance for what Christ did for us, but not a repeated sacrifice or re-offering of the blood of Christ to the Father. It in itself cannot save you from your sins. And because of this, it cannot save you from your sins again and again and again. There is no need for repeated saving. If you have faith in the Son of God, Christ Jesus, and that he offered himself as a sacrifice on the cross for your sins, then you have been saved. No need to repeat it. You can now have faith in his role as the great high priest and mediator of this new covenant, this better covenant. And I don't say any of this about the Catholic Church and their view as an insult to anyone or them. There's been enough warring and fighting throughout history that was not glorifying to God about the differences between Catholicism and Protestantism. If you have Catholic friends, as I do, I'm not calling you to shun them or hate them. Instead, have a Christ-like love for them, as we should for, for everyone. But a Christ-like love does include pointing out blatant and dangerous errors in theology that clearly omit scripture and compromises the gospel. Christ-like love often is tough love. 
Now let's move on from this topic of theological disagreement uh, and focus on the joys and the promises that we have so clearly laid out for us in the rest of Hebrews 9. And I know we've been doing a lot of jumping around within this passage kind of to piece it all together. But let's go back up again uh, to verse 15. It says, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. So the concept of these covenants that God made with his people Israel uh, and the new covenant that we now have in Christ is very unique and, and complex. There's really nothing else exactly like it within man's, mankind's dealings with each other. There could not possibly be any agreement between two people that is so perfectly good and gracious as this one that God has made with us. We have contracts and agreements, covenants, wills, testaments for various business dealings and legal occasions. And many of these words are used in Scripture to talk about God's covenants with us. But as you may have noticed, the word is often changed uh, in our English translation to talk about this same promise that we have from God. For example, we talk about the Old and New Testaments, but then we also refer to them as the Old and New Covenants. And then here in verses 15 through 18 is being referred to in more of the will and testament sense, like a last will and testament that you would make to pass on your estate or belongings to your loved ones. So this is actually a rare occasion when English has more words for the same thing than Greek does. Uh, in Greek, it is the word diathike that is used for all of these occasions. But in English, we have will, testament, and covenant, all with slightly different and nuanced meanings. And while in our language these words refer to different types of agreements, Scripture seems to use that same word, uh, diathike, for all of these different types and to refer to the different kind of facets of this covenant with God. So here in 15 through 18, we are being shown the similarities that the Old and New Covenant have with something like a will and testament. Obviously, it's not exactly like a will and testament that a person would, would make to plan for the occasion of their death and who's going to inherit their possessions and money and all that. But it does have similarities with that type of will. God didn't sit down one day and think, you know, in the case that I die, I want these people to get all of this stuff that I have. So I'm going to, to write out a will so that Uncle Sam doesn't take it all. That's, you know, that's ridiculous. But there are similarities, and that is what these verses are trying to point out. Just as a last will and testament requires a benefactor, a beneficiary, and a mediator, so does this covenant that God made with his people. 
The benefactor is the one creating the will, the one whose inheritance will be passed on to the beneficiary. And we, praise God, are the beneficiaries of this covenant with God. But there also must be a mediator, the one who will make sure that this will is carried out just like the benefactor wrote out. So in this, in this case, Christ is both the benefactor and the mediator. No other will and testament could function this way because for it to be carried out, the death of the benefactor must occur. So they can no longer be there to function then as the mediator. In the case of Christ, at his death, as it says in 15, we have received the promised eternal inheritance. But at his resurrection, he was then able to take on the role as mediator of this new covenant. At his death, we were redeemed from our transgressions, our failings under the first covenant. At his resurrection, we have received his eternal blessings, the, the eternal inheritance. As I begin to close, let's now give all praise and glory to our Savior, our Redeemer, our once-for-all sacrifice, our great high priest, mediator, and intercessor. But the good news still doesn't end there. Look finally at our last verse. Verse 28. Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly who are eagerly waiting for him. Christ Jesus died as a sacrifice in our place to offer himself as a great high priest to the Father on our behalf in the true, heavenly, most holy place. And then after rising again, he ascended into heaven to take his place finally as the king at the right hand of the Father. And he is coming again. But this time not to function again in the role of sacrifice to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Are you eagerly waiting for him? Come, Lord Jesus, come. Please pray with me. Lord, as I said, come, Lord Jesus, come. Lord, I pray that that last verse is true for every person here, for every believer across the world. And we are not getting lost in our temptations and desires and the things of this world, but we are focused every day, every hour and every minute of our lives on you and giving thanks and rejoicing continuously that, that we can come to you at any moment throughout our day to give thanks, to praise you, to ask for forgiveness in our failings, that you aren't holding those things over us. We don't have to wait until next year to be able to to give those things to you because Christ did it once for all. Let us not forget that. Let us not think that there is anything that we need to do every day to re-offer that sacrifice. 
because you did it once for all. And we praise you for that. And we eagerly await your second coming. In your name we pray. Amen.